It's the film show for film geeks by film geeks, and it's episode 67. Hey, welcome. I'm Lee Ford. And I'm Andy Beacon. And thank you for coming back for yet another further instalment in the continuing adventures of the film file. Yep, we are up to episode 67. And you know what that means? Two more episodes till the big one. I'm trying to do the maths in my head now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I get it. You get it. <laughs> How are you doing, Lee? <laughs> I'm I'm good. How are you? You uh, you sat up and did the Oscars, which I know we're going to be talking about later. Yes, I did. I was very tired because my body clock's all over the place. Normally, I can even though I'm normally working the next day after the Oscars, my body clock has always been ready for it. But I think with it coming later this year, my body's just like, no, 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 no. You don't do you don't do the overnight thing at this time of year. This is ridiculous, Andy. What are you doing? But I got through it. I battled through. And I'll uh, I'll feed back my opinions um, at the back end yeah, of the news. The, uh, I think uh, the the reviews weren't particularly um, uh, very pleasant. Um, yeah. Trainwreck was one review that I read, but you know we'll talk about that in detail. Uh, life it seems to be returning slowly back to normal, as normal as it can be, I guess. And uh, I've started to notice certainly the traffic's got heavier. Certainly, there's a sense of anticipation for. You know, for people asking me, what am I going to see at the cinema the first week it's opened? But yeah, I, there's a, there's a general sense of of movement now, don't you think? Have you got have you noticed that? Yeah, there's there's definitely a bustle going on. I mean, I'm noticing it because I've got an empty house at the moment. Kids are at school, uh, wife is at work. It's great, um, and we've got an actual date at which we're going to be opening now. Do you know what you're going to be opening with yet? Is it has it been announced that far in advance, or, or are studios still being a little uh, a little tentative? The films. I mean, we're more looking to see what is going to be coming in early June. And in early June, you're going to be getting like Fast and Furious 9, is it? I've yes, lost, yes, it is. I saw the trailer numbers. the other day, yeah. Yeah, there's also Peter Rabbit 2 should already be out by the time we open. So we'll be opening for Bank Holiday Weekend with that. And I imagine that there'll be a few other films that drop and land um, over the next month. It's Everything's still pretty much up in the air with release schedules. The only thing that we know is from June onwards is when the big releases start to actually pick up if they stay the course. Please stay the course. I can't wait. I can't wait to get back into into cinema going. It's uh, I, I, we've talked about it before. Things that I've missed: going out, going to restaurants, going to the cinema. Those are the the uh, the, the three things that have sadly been missing out of my life. But what hasn't been sadly missing is the film file, because every week we come back and offer you something new and exciting. And this week we'll be giving you our deep dive into Ridley Scott's classic. Blade Runner. I'll be reviewing Mortal Kombat. I'll also be taking a look at Stowaway, which landed on Netflix, and Unhinged, which I've been waiting to land on home streaming ever since it got a limited release at the cinemas last year. We'll be doing our roundup of the last episode of Falcon Winter Soldier. And of course, there'll be lots of other things. But before that, Andy, in his other role as private detective journalist to the stars, has been digging deep into the files of all the major studios to find out what is the news that he can bring you in this sequence we call The News. First of all, let's start the ball rolling with biopics. Now, biopics, we mentioned last week, the Epstein one and the Ramones biopic, 
Well, two more biopics have um, come to light over this past week. There's a Kiss biopic and a Jim Henson one. I knew about the Kiss one and I was very giddy. Kiss were the first band, major band that I saw live. Uh, and I saw them at Wembley Stadium. And, and Kiss was... Kiss were kind of the reason that I got into into rock music, and it was it was between Alice Cooper and Kiss. Now Alice Cooper, a cousin, lent me their Billion Dollar Babies album, but Kiss Kiss filled that perfect gap because I'd seen them in an, uh, an issue of Howard the Duck, and then of course they had the comics from Marvel, and and for me at, at, at such a young age, making that that leap into into music, Kiss were just the perfect conduit to do that because they were comic booky, and of course as we know gene simmons is a massive uh, a massive comic book fan so yeah i think there's there's quite a story i've heard some i've heard some of the legend behind kiss which I, i'm not going to repeat here but if they can include it and, it and it's better than the the motley crew that netflix did last one then I'm, I'm way up for it yeah i'll be watching it no matter what what am i saying <laughs> yeah i mean this is netflix who are close to securing the deal for the biopic called shout it loud and Norwegian filmmaker Joachim Ronning, who gave us Paris of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell Me No Tales. Take that how you want. Mm, at least he's going to be a visual filmmaker. He's going to direct from a script by Ollie Sanders. Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley are closely involved with the project, and it chronicles the tale of two misfit kids from Queens who formed a very unlikely friendship that led to the band that stood out with an elaborate costume and makeup design. Like you say, I mean, I, I think the kiss was probably the entryway for a lot of people of our kind of generation into yeah. rock because they were visually striking. They they looked like you looked at them and as a kid and went, I need to know more about these. Why do they look like that? And that got you listening to the music and drawn into it. So I'm well and truly looking forward to this as well. Like you say, I hope they do better than the Motley Crue one. Yeah, I, I mean, actually, uh, the book is hysterically funny. And it shouldn't be, but it is hysterically funny. <laughs> uh, and the film just sort of scratched the surface on it. What else have you got, Andy? On the other biopic front, the Jim Henson one, Muppet Man, has set Michael Mitnick, who gave us the current war, to write the film which will chart the life and times of Jim Henson, the legendary creator of the Muppets and all of its sub-projects, Fraggle Rock, Sesame Street, you name it, as well as films such as Labyrinth and Dark Crystal. It's going to focus on his battle to convince networks to give these cheap-looking puppets a chance and how he managed to turn them into not only a staple of the entertainment world, but an actual culture phenomenon. Everyone worldwide knows the Muppets. They're, they are literally puppet stars in their own right and you know who would have ever thought that when you talk about christmas films one of the staples of every christmas is the muppet christmas carol probably one of the best adaptations of charles dickens that you're ever going to see on the big screen absolutely phenomenal i know this script has been uh kicking around for years it was on uh, um when they award the awards for the best unmade scripts this this has been been on the back burner for a long time uh, again, colour me interested. Rainbow colour me interested, in fact. Well, that, that was a nice way to make the rainbow connection. Uh, <laughs> I set him up, he knocks him down. So let's move on to another rainbow connected thing, the rainbow bridge into Thor, Love and Thunder. Yeah, now it seems to me that somebody who's only just recently joined the cast may have dropped a bit of a clangor. Yeah, I mean, we know how Marvel are very secretive about all their reveals and they like things to be done official. Well, Russell Crowe decided in a radio interview over the past week to, you know, let slip that he's playing Zeus in the new Thor film. 
I mean, we knew he was going to be in the film. We didn't know what part. Now we know he's going to be Zeus. That opens up a huge amount of possibilities. And as fans of comic books, I'm sure we're not the only ones who are now clamoring to see if anyone else has been cast in other roles that could be connected. Uh, For those who don't know who Zeus is, Zeus is the ruler of the Greek gods. And he's kind of the equivalent to Thor. He's the thunder god. And whilst Thor, etc. are all Norse gods, and if you're not a fan of the comics, you'll go, what's the Greek gods got to do with it? The Greek gods are also a part of Marvel lore, and very frequently the two aspects come into conflict or team up. Particularly another character, which I'm expecting an announcement at some point, Hercules. Come on, this has got to be a shoe-in for a Hercules introduction into the MCU. Yeah, you can see the gags lining up because there was always that kind of, uh, you know, mismatch buddy thing that they didn't like each other and they really did like each other type stuff going on. And there is there's so much room uh, for, for comedy and especially how Chris Hemsworth, I can see Chris Hemsworth playing a scene opposite opposite a, a, a Hercules character. I want it to happen now. A Marvel with all the money, I'm pretty sure is thinking exactly the same. Definitely on this next phase of Marvel films and TV shows, they're expanding out the MCU. They're pulling on the threads of other characters and titles that have kind of been forgotten in the history of the comics, but deserve to come back. This would be an ideal opportunity to bring Hercules. So usually I ask you at this stage, is there any of the Marvel news? And I know there is. There is. So Falcon and Winter Soldier has finished, which we'll talk about later. And news immediately followed the final episode that Malcolm Spellman and Dallin Musson will be taking their writing from the show and spinning off a new Captain America film in the wake of the events of the show. I wonder if this was always planned. You you never can tell with Marvel, but it was the same thing. And maybe this is the trend. I I don't know that uh, WandaVision was basically an origin story for Photon, if that's what she's going to end up being called, the other Captain Marvel character, and really Scarlet Witch. And this series is basically an origin issue of uh, the Falcon becoming Captain America. It kind of makes sense. I mean, if you just want to watch the films and you don't watch the TV series, and you're doing yourself a huge disservice if you're not watching the TV series. But I I feel that a Captain America film with the Falcon taking the Captain America role could easily just start off, given the events of Endgame and the final scenes of Passion the Shield over, you'd accept it as a casual viewer. Oh, well, here's the new Captain America. I think this was always planned that they would do a Captain America film. You need to have a Captain America as the linchpin of an Avengers team, let's be honest, in one way, shape or form. The TV series of Falcon and Winter Soldier serves as a nice little bridging gap for the people who want to immerse themselves more in the law. And I think it's done a great job of showing Sam accepting the responsibility that he's going to have in the role that he's going to get in the films going forwards. No directors confirmed, no casting is announced. This is very early stages of creation, but I'm sure we should anticipate some threads from the series to be pulled out of it. I'd like to see the director come back because I think she did an amazing job uh, on that show. It was really, really beautifully visual. But if you think about it, the way that the MCU TV is now taking off, it gives us the opportunity to tell stories in between stories and, and introduce new characters and, and give, you know, one of the things that all the complaints you always get with with the first in any uh, superhero franchise, the first one is usually an origin story. Now you can get through all that on the series and basically yep. great days, but we are now getting 20 hours worth of Marvel every year. If you count, three movies at two hours each. Uh, Then you've got uh, Wanda, and then you had uh, uh, Falcon Winter Soldier. 
we've got Loki in June, I think it lands. Yep. And then we've got Hawkeye. Uh, we've got What If. You know, we're, we're into 20 hours worth of, of, of the MCU. Great days. I'm telling you, this, these is, this is either the lead up to the apocalypse or the lead up <laughs> to the new age of Aquarius. I'm hoping for the, the latter rather than the former. Uh, sticking with Marvel and Disney Plus's Ironheart series for the you MCU. see, there you go again. More Marvel. It's just getting better. Thank you, Kevin. <laughs> you find this with Marvel that they don't just drop one bit of news at once. They drop like four or five things and then nothing for two months and then four or five things. Well, the Ironheart TV series has now got a head writer in the guise of Chinaka Hodge, who you might recognise the name from the Snowpiercer TV series, as well as she provided some writing for Apple's Amazing Stories. That was a disappointment. Yeah, I think it had a lot to live up to. I I think that, like with the more recent Twilight Zone, which you didn't quite take to, uh, but I kind of took to, they have a legacy to live up to, and they don't quite fill that legacy. If you take it as its own thing, it's okay. Uh, But anyway, Ironheart, for those who don't know, is the story of Dominique Thorne, a 15-year-old MIT student who reverse engineers an Iron Man suit to create a suit for herself. The series will be part of the Disney Plus MCU spin-off shows, which, as we've already said, there's a wealth of them coming. I mean, you've mentioned some. You didn't mention Ms. Marvel, She-Hulk, Moon Knight, Secret Invasion, and the still-to-be-titled Wakanda series. It's a fantastic time for Marvel, and they've definitely got a plan for the next few years of how these shows are going to spark up, then a film comes, and then drop out, back to a TV series, come back up. This is going to be a heck of a journey over the next few years, and I am well and truly on board. I've got a little bit of news, uh, and it's just landed. I know we had a Fantasy Island movie which lent into much more of a horror aspect. Well, they've decided they're going to uh, reboot the TV series, which is going to debut in August of this year. And now the Mr. Rourke character is no longer Mr. Rourke and is Ms. Rourke, Elena Rourke, and has uh, been announced this week that Rosalind Sanchez is going to be headlining that series. So I hope they go for the horror aspect that started to be explained in the Bloomhouse film, even though it wasn't hugely successful. Um, did you want to say there's a director's cut out there? It, it's not been released, but apparently there is a much longer version of it that it kind of makes sense when you watch it. You can see where the chops were made to shrink it down. I I, I saw that there was about another 45-minute version that right. we were hoping would get a release, but I think the low performance that it did has kind of made the studio go, ah, is it worth releasing this extended version? Maybe down the line. Who knows? We reported last time on the deal that Sony made with Netflix for exclusive first-play options on all of their films starting in 2022. Well... Disney have followed that with a second play deal made with Sony, which means that once Netflix have used up their exclusivity window, Disney grabs the rights for their Disney Plus service, allowing Sony-led Marvel movies to join their brethren on that service. This appears to be a complete win-win for Sony, who's shown that they don't need to create their own streaming service when they can just cash grab all the streaming services out there and work out exclusivity deals one after another after another. I I think it's interesting that we are now going to get all the Marvel stuff basically on on one platform. You're going to have Disney Plus, you're going to get Spider-Man movies, uh, the the previous Spider-Man movies. Uh, One day, Sony, I believe, or was it Columbia, did Ghost Rider. And there's only there's still there's only one missing from the MCU that hasn't made it across yet. Do you know what that is? Do you remember? Incredible Hulk. Yeah, because that was Universal. 
But who yeah. knows in the future, will Universal see the, the, the cash that they can reap in from, from uh, doing a deal with Disney Plus? And then that opens the doors to, you know, the relationship between Disney and Sony. And does that therefore open up other relationships to, to Disney as well? Can you get crossover movies happening with other studios? It's, uh, it's an interesting time because IP is, is the most important selling aspect of, of Hollywood right now. I, mean, I think the important thing is that Disney are now long, no longer just a studio in opposition to Sony. Disney are also a platform for screening, which means that these deals can work between different companies, different distributors, because Disney just go, well, as Disney Plus, we're not the distributor. We're the platform for you to showcase your products. So... Interesting times. Very interesting times. Hey, kids, I just remember when Spider-Man was Nicholas Hammond in a really bad costume. <laughs> you don't know what you missed out on, kids. Oh, let's see that on Disney+. Bill Plus. Bixby, come back. <laughs> We've spoken about it before, but the Father of the Bride remake for Warners and Plan B has now added an additional person to the cast in the guise of Gloria Estefan. Miami Sound Machine. That was that was yeah, the Miami Sound right. Machine. Yeah, uh, the singer of Miami Sound Machine has joined the crew. She'll be playing the mother of the bride, with Andy Garcia playing the father of the bride in a remake that is going to do its own thing. It's going to take the Cuban American approach of large families and lots of different stories going on around the planning of this wedding. The bride is being played by Adria Arjona of Pacific Rim Uprising. Not a great film, but. She was okay in it. And director Gaz Alzraki intends to make this remake stand on its own two feet. Got a bit more news for you. You know Tom Cruise. Well, not, I know you don't know him, but you know who Tom Cruise is. Do you know he's in our neck of the woods right now? I saw him hanging onto a train in Yorkshire. Things you won't normally hear about Tom Cruise. <laughs> the thing is, you would normally hear that Tom Cruise was hanging on the side of a train. It's if you said Tom Cruise was sat on a train. That's a different matter. Yeah, he's been. Um, they've been shooting more stuff for Mission Impossible 7 in our neck of the woods uh, using a extension to a rail line down into a quarry in order to do some high-speed action with him hanging on the side of a train and fighting people on the roof. Very similar to what we saw in the first Mission Impossible film, but let's be honest... I can't wait. (laughs) So looking forward to this. So looking forward to it. Now, after his tiff with Warners, Christopher Nolan is apparently shopping around. He's breaking his ties with the studio that originally gave him a lot of freedom over the years, but who he's fallen out with over the past year through the handling of streaming content. In doing so, he's apparently been speaking with Netflix, of all people, about perhaps teaming with them, which sounds strange given his pro-cinema stance. Yeah. Now, I can't quite figure this. Because he had the, the huge fallout, mainly with Warners, due to the HBO Max deal, that his films would go... Well, it was the ill-conceived initial press release, wasn't it, that, 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 that Warners put out about HBO Max, about their movies going yeah. straight to there, and then it got it, it got redefined as, as a joint release, et cetera, et cetera. Nolan just wasn't happy about it and, and expressed his anger alongside a few other directors. But yeah. to go to Netflix just doesn't make sense. He's such a fan of especially IMAX. He's keeping IMAX cinema alive. I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure where this is going to go. I guess we're reading into it that he's talking about movies, but you never know. He might be thinking about creating a series. Maybe acting as a producer on some things. Uh, Scott Stuber, the head of original films for Netflix, revealed in a recent interview that they've had talks with Nolan when he was asked if some filmmakers are still hesitant to make films for them. And to quote Scott Stuber, 
I think there are aspects of global distribution in the cinema that are still appealing. Chris Nolan and I have spoken quite a bit, and that's still something he wants deeply. If we can't provide that, it will still be an issue for him. I think we have a model that works, and we've done well with theatres that have played us. As these things change, we'll be having all these conversations to see where it all lands and what the landscape on the other side of all of this is. Now, this suggests to me that Netflix are thinking of escalating their cinematic strategy. As you'll know, over the past couple of years, they've been targeting four-week exclusivities for cinemas for some of the key films that are going to their service, some of their originals. Maybe they're now thinking, you know what? The cinema industry, if it picks up and gets back to the numbers that it used to do, it's quite a lucrative side project. They will still make the films as they'd normally do for Netflix, but they will get four to six weeks at the cinema first. That's when Nolan would probably go, okay, I'll think about it because, as we know, Nolan loves this freedom of creativity. And whilst Warners have given him so much freedom, not many studios would, but we know from experience that Netflix give a lot of freedom to their creators, for good or for bad. And and this ties into conversations that we've had, that eventually Netflix or Amazon, you know, one of the big streamers, are going to buy a cinema chain. Uh, I mean, there's a huge amount of speculation that the cinema chain that's just gone under in the uh, in the US is that it'll be one of those big two streaming platforms that'll probably show an interest in it. And it's it's purely speculative. But eventually, I think Netflix or Amazon are, are going to say, let's have a cinema chain. Gives us a distribution yeah. platform that enhances what we're doing on our streaming services. It just seems to make perfect, perfect sense. It's going to happen. We will sit, we will eventually have Amazon cinemas out there and I may end up working for them. You never know. Universal and Working Title are looking at bringing Mary Norton's The Borrowers to the screen again. The story about a family of tiny people who live in the walls and floors of an English house and borrow big folk stuff to survive is a beloved family favourite story. And it's already seen previous adaptations to film and also to TV. This new version is going to be directed by Conrad Vernon, who was behind Monsters vs. Aliens and the recent Adams Family animation, and is planning to adapt a new take on the source material. I, I quite like The Borrowers. Yeah, me too. It's, it, as you said, a family favourite. Um, we've talked about family favourites over the last few days, and uh, I, I was remiss in not mentioning The Borrowers, but yeah, absolutely fantastic. I did like the last big film adaptation. There's been a couple of decent TV versions. Yep, this is one that hopefully will tick that nice little Paddington-esque kind of box of nice family films. Now, Seth Rogen. Seth Rogen is a mixed bag. You either love him or hate him. I've got a bit of time for him. But one thing that he's aware of is that the most memorable parts of his films, that people always talk to him and say, oh, I love that bit, are the physical comedy parts, such as when he jumps and puts his foot through a windscreen of a car. And so he's decided, you know what? Why are those just the supporting things? Why are those amidst a sea of talky jokes? Those things that pop up once in a while. Why don't we make a bunch of these physical jokes and not rely on verbal humour? And he's planning to make an action film called Escape, inspired by Buster Keaton and Jackie Chan's style of action, with hardly any dialogue, if any at all. It's, you know, cinema's a broad church. And you can do anything in with it. I, you know, after The Boys, I give uh, Seth Rogen a, a, a definite pass because there are some some huge examples of broad physical visual comedy uh, in The Boys. So, I, yeah, no, initially, I'm not biting. It depends. It depends on cast. I, I, I'm a 
big fan of Buster Keaton, funny enough. And I've, over yeah. recently, I've watched uh, a fair few Buster Keaton movies. And the physicality of that kind of action, uh, it, it still works. It makes it timeless. So we'll see. I'm not going to hold my breath, but uh, I'm not going to lose faith in it until I know more about it. Um, Eric Heisera, who penned Arrival, and Christine Boylan, who penned Constantine, and the production company behind the Witcher TV series are teaming up to develop a shared universe franchise, because everything's a shared universe these days, based on the World of Darkness range of role-playing games. Say again? World of Darkness. I can see you glazing over, and it means nothing to you. But this means a significant chunk to people like myself, who are heavily into tabletop role-playing. Now, the World of Darkness begun in 1991, with game books starting with Vampire the Masquerade, and expanded to include Werewolf the Apocalypse and Hunter the Reckoning, which drew in all manner of classic monsters in the world and created this alternate dark universe. (laughs) It was doing it before Universal tried to do it on film. The games put monsters as the heroes of the stories, and as a role-playing game with dice and pencils, you would play vampires who are trying to survive in this world whilst feeding on um, as many humans as you could. Uh, the the series grew off grew up into an expanding range of books, comic books, novels, video games over the years, and indeed, it's highly likely that the Underworld series of films drew a lot of inspiration from them. I you mean, know, I, I'm so surprised I've not heard of this. <laughs> I I wrote a campaign in the late '90s, which was set in the world of darkness. I was running a Vampire the Masquerade, and a few years later, the first Underworld came out. And it was pretty much my campaign from start to finish. I knew every beat of that film before I sat and watched it because that was the same kind of story that I had. Romeo and Juliet with Vampires and Werewolves. That's how I pitched it. Um, I'm convinced that someone found my notes and ripped me off. But that's the kind of aspect that you're looking at. The game series drew a lot of praise for the serious themes they explored. And it was one of the main brands that moved tabletop RPG away from Dungeons and Dragons approach into a more dramatic storytelling environment, along with such titles as Aspergica, Cyberpunk and In Nominee. So there's a lot of potential within here. I can see why they're saying a shared universe, because the game series is a shared universe anyway, and it all fits together well. Whether this will be films or a TV series similar to The Witcher, we don't know at this point in time. But there's potential in here for something something really different and really special. Yeah, I'm interested. As I said, I'm so surprised I've never heard of it. it it's never crossed my path. Uh, clearly, I'm, I'm not much in, apart from the odd platform game, but but tabletop gaming is is, is something that's never really been for me. So, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of interested if, it's, uh, if it sounds as good as how you described it. Talking of monsters, though, uh, you heard my slight review, slightly negative review to King Kong versus Godzilla anyway. Adam Wingard is now in talks uh, for a new MonsterVerse movie. He's also in talks to do Thundercats as well. Yeah, I mean, he's got a he's a busy man um, looking at what he's... Because he's got his face-off sequel, the live-action Thundercats, and, like you say, uh, more MonsterVerse. Ideas such as Son of Kong are getting thrown around. And given the fact that Godzilla vs. Kong has now passed 400 million worldwide, you can kind of see why. It's so far, it's the most successful of all the MonsterVerse films, even though we're still kind of in a pandemic world and the film was released on streaming services alongside the cinematic release. It's performed, which shows there's a desire for monsters smashing each other. And whilst we're on the subject of a desire for 
low low plot and high energy action. Mortal Kombat also opened quite well this weekend. And you're going to be reviewing it, I believe. I'll be talking about the film in detail later. But despite being a streaming HBO title as well, it still managed 23 million at the US box office and 51 million worldwide. The budget was 55 million. So it's already on track to be making quite a lot of books. Given the somewhat niche target audience that this film has, this is clearly a win again for cinemas as they begin to spark back to life. If we look at the global box office for 2021 so far, Godzilla vs. Kong is now past 400 million, like we said. Even Raya the Last Dragon and Tom and Jerry have passed 100 million, again, despite being available on streaming services. Um, in, in addition, according to third party analysts, Mortal Kombat has topped Godzilla vs. Kong's HBO streaming figures for the opening weekend, scoring 3.8 million views against Godzilla vs. Kong's 3.6 million, which now puts a certain Justice League down into like <laughs> fifth place um, it really adds perspective into all the people saying that justice league showed there was a huge demand and it drew everyone to hbo because these other films have done a lot better than it i have a little bit of news just landed right as we were started recording and that's scott uh, derrickson's new uh, horror film the black phone is to have a january 2022 release and it's based on a short novel by joe hill better known as the son of stephen king uh, the film stars Ethan Hawke, and it's the story of Finley Shaw, a shy but clever 13-year-old boy who is abducted by a sadistic killer and trapped in a soundproof basement where screaming is of little use. I really like Scott Derrickson. I thought he did a bang-up job on uh, Doctor Strange. Uh, initially disappointed that he wasn't going back for the sequel, but Sam Raimi is, is, is the perfect choice. But I really enjoyed Sinister. I thought it was a clever, smart a horror film. And the writer of that is also the writer on this movie as well. Just when you think I can't get any more excited for the sequel to Enchanted called Disenchanted, they go and announce the casting of three villains for the film. In amongst them is Maya Rudolph, who I absolutely adore. I think she is marvellous. She's got a great comic time into it, and she always brings something to every film that she's in. Also, Yvette Nicole Brown and Jamie Mays will be playing, all three of them will be playing three evil menaces, no details on the inspiration yet, but after the first film clearly riffed on Maleficent and the Queen from Snow White, expect maybe some ugly stepsisters approach being brought in on this one. Three great names. Can't wait to see this. And in other news that kind of like drags on from us talking about it previously, we've been asking, when are we going to see a West Side Story trailer land? Yeah, and, and didn't it? Came out of nowhere again, like Shang-Chi last week. It just dropped... And you know what? It looks impressive. Well, you know the idea behind it. When West Side Story was originally in production, the original uh, uh, movie that ended up being directed by Robert Wise, Jerome Moore, who was the choreographer and director of the stage show, wanted to do it all on location. Mm. Uh, and there's only one, um, one song, which is the Jet song, right at the beginning of the film that was shot on location. But it looks like Spielberg has, has taken the chance to go back and do it as was uh, uh, originally as, as originally conceived. I thought it looked great. I think he's going back more to the plot of the play, uh, the stage yeah. show, than the uh, than a direct remake of, of the last movie. But I thought the trailer was fantastic. West Side Story alongside Singing in the Rain are my favourite musicals of all time. The only uphill struggle that the film's going to have is with the allegations against Ansel Elgort, who plays Tony in the film. It's going to cause a bit, it might be a bit problematic for them in the marketing of it because, 
whilst the allegations are just that allegations, we know how mud is sticking in this day and age, and it kind of makes it a, a bit of a struggle for them to be able to still get people infused. I bet their marketing department are going to be working overtime between now and Christmas to try and get to the bottom of it. As you said, it, it, it could go away by then. It could also damage the film at the box office. And there was talk about, from from the fan perspective at least, that, that they recast the lead. But that was after the film was finished. Uh, a bit of sad news this week. Uh, Jim Steinman. Now, if you're a rock fan, Jim Steinman's name instantly crops up as being the composer behind Bat Out of Hell uh, and created some of the most classic big power ballads uh, uh, that, that you'll remember from the 70s, 80s onwards. Why we mention him on the film show? Because he wrote the songs for a film that is absolutely Marmite. And that's Walter Hill's Streets of uh, Streets of Fire. Have you seen Streets of Fire, Andy? I've not. Um, that's, <laughs> that's actually within my watch list of films that I want to get round to watching. And when I say Marmite, it's just one of those... It's one of those films that is is absolutely fantastic if you're in the right right frame of mind for it. Walter Hill created this sort of 1950s science fiction world and then decided that he also was going to be a musical with Jim Steinman writing the score. It was a huge box office failure, but it's a cult classic. If you ever get a chance to see it, give Streets of Fire an, an absolute go. Uh, young William Defoe in it, Michael Perret in the lead. Where's he now? And uh, And it's such a joy. I, I've not seen it for probably 20 years, so I don't know how I'd, how I'd see it now. But but uh, our sad condolences about the passing of Jim Steinman. Uh, Citizen Kane has lost its Rotten Tomatoes perfect score. <laughs> this made me cry with laughter because I believe of a review. Yes, a scanned page from the Chicago Tribune in 1941 had a review for the film. And so Rotten Tomatoes have cut that review and popped it on their site as part of their aggregate, which drops it down to a 99% rating from the original 100%. For those who cared about such things, uh, some outlets have reported that Paddington 2 has now taken the top spot of perfect reviews. And whilst Paddington 2 has got 100%, it's certainly better scoring than Kane. And it's certainly the highest scoring film with 100% rating. But Rotten Tomatoes also does its weighted average aggregate list, which puts Paddington at 31, still above Citizen Kane. Um, but <laughs> it still keeps... It happened one night from 1934 in first place. I, I think it's... I mean, at what point do you stop going back through history and finding reviews and tagging them onto things? I, does it make any difference these days? Is it going to change people's opinion towards Citizen Kane? No. No, it's still the greatest film ever made. <laughs> but it's just that thing that we're so reliant on on, on lists. You know, I, I mentioned to you that I did a, uh, my favourite 100 movies. Now, they weren't in any order because I don't have an order. When somebody says, what's your favourite film? It could change by the season. Uh, I'm doing my 100 favourite books. Boy, that's hard. But uh, no, people just like to be able to put lists together and have top tens and that sort of thing. Undoubtedly, I love Paddington 2, but it isn't Citizen Kane. Leonardo DiCaprio's Appian Way, along with Endeavour Content and Make Ready, have grabbed the rights to Thomas Vinterberg's Another Round for a US remake. Now, the film, which we will mention in a second when we talk about the Oscars, foreign, la like, foreign language film, absolutely brilliant film following four teachers going through a midlife crisis losing their motivation and no longer inspiring their pupils, but discovered that research suggests that maintaining a level of blood alcohol through steady drinking can heighten perception and focus, and they start experimenting 
gradually increasing their levels more and more as they regain a spark for life, but things get out of hand. The original film stars Mads Mikkelsen in a fantastic lead role. This remake is looking likely to have Leo himself taking that role. I don't know why they can't just get Mads Mikkelsen back because he can speak English and he'll be fantastic anyway. But you know what? Everyone's again, everyone's already vocally against this remake because as soon as you announce any foreign language film is getting remade for a US audience, people are like, why can't people just watch subtitles? Because not everyone will. So why not get the story out to more people? I totally agree, Andy. Uh, but that leads us nicely into the Oscars. Now, as we said at the opener, this was uh, a pretty poorly received Oscars. Uh, seemed to be all over the place. They changed the running order, so it didn't end with with Best Picture, which is how traditionally the Oscars uh, um, the Oscars run. Give me an idea of how bad it was, and then we'll discuss discuss the winners. A lot of the awards were predictable, but. The event itself caused a lot of controversy. The location shift made sense because they couldn't really sit in their stadium seatings uh, with a crowded theatre in this day and age. And so because of the pandemic aspect, they got a different location, which gave it a dinner party kind of feel. Only the people who were up for awards were invited along to sit in groups around tables, face masks on, unless the camera was on them when they had to take the face mask off. You can kind of accept that. But whilst over the past couple of years they've been doing the hostless Oscars and it's worked, it's had a flow to it, the new environments that it was in made it feel a bit disjointed and yeah, they, it didn't flow as well. They did it at the um, LA Union Station, didn't they? Yeah, and it's a beautiful looking station. It's and what, beautiful building. What they did to it with the main hall of it looks amazing. But instead of sticking to presenting from the stage, the people who are introducing different things were up at different parts of the area and next to this table, next to that one, and just moving around. It was like, just get a consistency here. What's going on? Now, the biggest controversies come from the live performances of the original songs that normally are intersected throughout the show yeah. were not part of the show. They were done beforehand and they were not presented to international audiences. In the US, you could see a pre-show thing which you get to see them, but we didn't get to see them. And I can't kind of like seeing them because I like to be reminded what the songs are. It's all well and good saying such and such a song is up, but you can't quite place it until you see the performance. It it meant that everything was just felt a bit kind of rushed along. It was like, get to the next award, get to the next award. And then normally the best picture is the last award that it all builds up to. Everything leads up to the final confirmation, best picture, big celebration. But this year, the Best Picture Award landed before Best Actress and the Best Actor Awards. Now, many expected that this was done to play on the certainty of Chadwick Boseman winning, yeah. allowing a fitting tribute to the star to close the show. However, as anyone who's seen The Father, which I spoke about last week, will understand, Anthony Hopkins won for his staggeringly powerful portrayal. And given the 83-year-old Hopkins wasn't in attendance because, you know, 83 years old, 4 a.m., living in Wales, pandemic, there was no speech to wrap the show up with. Instead, the show simply said, Anthony Hopkins wins, roll credits, done. And it just felt very, what, eh? Yeah, it felt very flat, didn't it? Um, that coming on the back of the In Memoriam section, which was an absolute shambles. It was far too fast-paced, and it was set to the upbeat rhythms of Stevie Wonder. Names were rattling past on screen so fast that you couldn't follow them. And boy, 
there were some names they shared that were deserved a much, much more somber look back than what we were given. It was all an absolute mess. And the blame can only be placed on the production crew. They juggled the best picture, best actor and best actress around, not knowing what the winner was going to be and took that gamble. And it was not a gamble to pay off. The whole event seemed directed and put together clumsily. And this was Steven Soderbergh who was behind the scenes, pulling the strings and directing and producing it. Yeah, that that surprised me more. I, I'm a huge Steven Soderbergh fan, but that surprised me more than anything else that he is such a talent like like Steven Soderbergh could could put together something that 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 just eschewed everything that you expect from the Oscars. I know they had to do something different. Of course they did. You know, the up points was that it was inclusive and it was uh, diverse in a way that it's never been before, as, as so it should be. But as you said, from a production point of view, absolutely didn't know what absolutely it was shambles. doing. And the viewer ratings for the show dropped 58% over last year's figures. Recent award shows such as the Globes and Grammys have also dipped significantly, which highlights that maybe in a time when the world is in a pandemic and had a year or more of misery, the last thing that people want to see is rich people in flashy dresses having a party. And that's the big thing is that it just came across this year. I normally love the Oscars. I normally embrace it. I normally don't. I don't get cynical about it being rich people patting each other on the back, but this year it genuinely felt like overindulgence. On a more positive light, though, uh, the Brits did very, very well out of it. Yeah, I mean, to just give a quick roundup of who took what amount of awards. Nomadland took three awards. It took Best Picture, Best Actress and Best Director. Sound of Metal, The Father, Ma Rainey, Soul, Mank and Judas and the Black Messiah all took two awards each. And Promising Young Woman, Another Round, My Octopus Teacher and Minari took one each. And Tenet also was in there. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I can't argue with with the nominations and I can't argue with the result. Everybody and all the good money was on uh, Nomadland to to do as well as it did. Uh, and Promising Young Woman was was definitely going to win something. And that fits into sort of, as I said earlier, being diverse uh, and being representative. There's not many of the awards that I would dispute and say that wasn't deserving. You know, I I, I personally would have liked Wolf Walkers to have taken the animation award, but I can understand why Soul got it. The only one that I was kind of baffled with was My Octopus Teacher. Yeah, which, which that, you really hated, didn't you? I, I just think it's a very weak documentary. And the other documentaries in there were so strong it just seemed a very, very strange choice to me. But you know what? It's all about different opinions. It's all about what you personally, yeah, what I personally love, not everyone personally loves. The rest of the awards, yeah, whilst I would have liked the father to have got best picture over Nomadland, I can kind of understand Nomadland getting it. And we'll talk about Nomadland probably next week because it lands this week yeah, on lucky. Disney for Based the on the UK. back of, of everything, of course, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. But awards-wise, the awards that were handed out, very well-deserving and a really good range. And there was no one film that dominated. It could have gone any way at any point, even though you could more or less predict what categories everything would get the awards on. I said Anthony Hopkins for Best best Actor. I was right. It was the presentation itself that was a huge, huge disappointing. And it's kind of soiled my whole passion for the Oscars now. Am I still going to be enthused about the Oscars next year? 
I'm hoping they'll get some structure back. I think after the past couple of years when I've been saying, you know what, maybe we don't need a host. I think next year they need one host because they need to pull everything back together. We'll see next year. And of course, with the Oscars next year, we'll be here to cover it and we'll be here with more news. If you're enjoying the show, please hit that subscription button because every time you hit that subscription button, there's a hashtag asking for a director's cut of this very show. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and any place you want to go for your regular podcast download. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so at... Over on Twitter, at FilmFileUK, on Instagram, FilmFileUK, or you can email us with your selection of your favourite films. What film do you want us to look at? Podcast at FilmFile.UK. So because we've not been going to the cinema, we have been doing deep dives into classic films. And to some extent, I can't believe that we haven't done a deep dive into, well, there's none more classic science fiction than 1982's Blade Runner. Los Angeles, 2019. There was an escape from the off-world colonies. They slaughtered... The assignment? Track down six manufactured humans. He's the best man for the job. But he may die trying to prove it. Harrison Ford is the Blade Runner. As I said, Blade Runner was released in the distant past of 1982, directed by Ridley Scott, written by Hampton Fisher and David Peebles, and based on the Philip K. Dick dystopian future novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? The film starred Harrison Ford, Rutger Hauer and Sean Young and strangely underperformed when it was released at the box office. But time, videotape and stepping into the future has redeemed Blade Runner to make it one of the most powerful, visually stunning science fiction films of all time and highly recognised for being such a fantastic movie. Andy, when, when did you discover Blade Runner? Well... Um, I mean, this is a film that's had more cuts than Eric B's turntable. I was too young to see Blade Runner on release in 1982. I was nine. I had to wait for the VHS release later on. But in 1982, my introduction to Blade Runner was via the annual of the film for Christmas, which reprinted the Marvel Comics adaptation for UK audiences. God bless annuals. I must have read that comic story over and over again. I pored over it. I was... uh, the look, the visual representations were captured perfectly in comic book format. So by the time that VHS dropped at the store and we rented it, I already knew the story inside out. I knew the characters. I knew the rainwashed streets, the skyscrapers, the flying cars, the fashions. Everything was enticing. And seeing them on video rental, I fell in love immediately with the film. Even though that very first release of the film has its problems. I saw it as a re-release. I didn't see it for whatever reason. Uh, I can't recall. I didn't see it on its initial release. I saw it as a re-release. I saw a really poor print to an audience that was uninterested. But I sat there, absolutely fell in love with it from that film. I was I was already pretty much aware of Ridley Scott in those days from uh, Alien, and I really enjoyed Legend. But Blade Runner, for me, was that that perfect combination of so many different genre elements that I love. Science fiction and uh, and the detective novel and, and how 
seamlessly they, they crafted together. For those who don't know the story, shame on you, as you should, because it is one of those films that, that every film geek has had to see. Set in a dystopian future of Los Angeles in the strange futuristic world of 2019, in which synthetic humans known as replicants are bioengineered by a powerful corporation known as Tyrell to work on stuff like space colonies on and in dangerous regions uh, in, in, in the known universe. A fugitive group of advanced replicants led by Roy Batty, played by Rutger Hauer so powerfully, escape back to Earth, burnt out cop and Blade Runner Rick Deckard reluctantly agrees to hunt them down and terminate them. Scott's film is the template on which all cyberpunk films have drawn from since. His unique vision of the future, a world seemingly in perpetual darkness with neon lights pushing through darkened corners and rainwashed steamy streets where the corporate rich have either fled the planet to off-world colonies or reside in an almost godlike residence of monumental towers and pyramids. It captured the essence of the genre that the novel by Philip K. Dick and other cyberpunk tales from writers such as Gibson had described. There are many times when a location is a character in the film, and we say it quite frequently, particularly when we talk about Michael Mann films, etc., that location is important to become a character. But here, it is the the character. It is the essential character. It, Philip K. Dick was very distrusting of Hollywood, and he was very critical about all the scripts in the early production of this. But when it got to the film's final shooting script, he had a chance to read it, and he gave it full approval, feeling it complemented the novel perfectly, and the visual style matched what he had seen in his own head. The film ended up being dedicated to the writer who sadly passed away before post-production was completed. So he never got a chance to see the finished product of what was a masterful working of one of his more iconic stories. And just like Alien, Scott created a future which is now, well, it's, it's now become the template for how we see science fiction movies. Um, Alien with its sort of down and dirty functional world. Uh, and Blade Runner is, is the future that strangely still we all want i mean we want flying cars we want the world of 2019 as is we want it to look futuristic uh, but it also had that that neo-noir look it felt like a a 40s detective film uh, and, and scott shot it as such he, he shot it as a film noir and, and that to me gives it its timeless quality yeah a uh, because i mean he was influenced by his like ridley scott's own love of japan I mean, which he then delved back into with Black Rain. He loves the cityscapes of Japan and you can see it within this, but he took it to what would Japan look like if it was taken to the extreme in a polluted filled world and it captures it beautifully. It still feels futuristic because it looks, it looks close to what we live in, but so different enough to make it its own entity. Um, you mentioned about the cast at the beginning and, you know, Ford as Deckard, he, he plays it like Harrison Ford plays anything. He kind of just gives it gives it what he can and just moves on with it. Uh, but he plays very downbeat and uninspired until he encounters Sean Young's Rachel. And that's when some life starts to come to Deckard. He starts to find a reason for, you know, moving on and doing things. The rest of the cast provide a lot of life. Daryl Hannah is magnificent as Pris. William Sanderson as J.F. Sebastian. Joe Turkle as Tyrell. Edward James Olmos as Gaff with city-speak lines of dialogue that you kind of understand, but occasionally there's words that you go, what? Um, but no one stands out in this film more than Rutger Hauer. 
who plays the enigmatic leader of replicants, Roy Batty, seeking an extension to his four-year life. He's mesmerizing on screen. He captivates as soon as he steps into frame. And when you get to his closing monologue, his Tears of the Rain speech on his final moments, in that moment, you kind of see that he wasn't the villain. He was the kind of anti-hero of the tale. He just wanted his God, his creator, to allow him to live a life. The memorable lines, which Howard uh, spoke, weren't the same on paper. He, they were filled, as he, he described, with opera talk and high-tech speech. And so the night before shooting, he redrafted them. He added in his own little elements. And when it came to shooting it, apparently half the production crew were moved to tears by the performance. And you can see it every time that I rewatch that. It's such a brilliantly put-together monologue. It's one of the most iconic monologues of film of all time. I totally agree. As you said, he, he rewrote the character's Tears in the Rain speech, presented it to Scott who on, on set and said, this is what I want to do. And of course, he did. He had no baggage. We'd not really seen him in, in uh, uh, other than in European films. He'd been in Soldier of Orange and Turkish Delight for Paul Verhoeven. But he was a, a bit of a blank canvas for, for uh, American and English audiences. Philip K. Dick said of Rutger Hauer, that his batty was a cold, Aryan and flawless performance. And uh, Howard himself uh, said that Blade Runner was his favourite film and explained in a 2001 chat, Blade Runner needs no explanation. It is just all of the best and there's nothing like it. To be part of a real masterpiece which changed the world's thinking, it's awesome. And, and it's, an, it's an awesome piece of casting and it's an all, awesome performance. Of course, you can't talk about Blade Runner without talking initially about Harrison Ford's voiceover in the initial cut. The studio didn't like the film, didn't really know what to do with it. As I said earlier, it, it didn't do as well as the box office as, as expected. Uh, the studio kind of interfered with it. They made uh, Harrison Ford add a detective noir voiceover, which uh, Harrison Ford sounds completely bored because he hoped that it wouldn't be used and, and they stuck it on. I, I never had a problem with that because it, it fed into the the whole film noir kind of detective feel to it. And of course, after that, there were many rumours that a longer cut existed. And we got the first of those in what was known as, well, it was basically the work print of, of the movie, which came out in 1992, released as the director's cut. Uh, got a strong response, but it was basically the work print, wasn't it? Yep. My issues with the voiceover are more for how it panders to the dumb kid at the back of the class who's not paying attention. There's there's lines such as like skin jobs. That's what he called them. Yes, we know because he's just called them skin jobs. You don't need to explain that much detail. It went into too much explanation. Uh, but the director's cut in 1992, the work print got a kind of release, but then Scott kicked up a stink and says, whoa, whoa, not the work print. If you're going to do this, do it right. So the studio stopped showing the work print and got some notes off Scott, which they then cobbled together to get the director's cut version. And that, that was my first chance to see the film on the big screen. A totally new experience. It got rid of that overdubbed dialogue. It got rid of the joyful, happy ending. And it became more closer to the vision that Scott wanted. This is a film that stuck at different points of my life and came back with a new version. And Scott got full artistic control back to do his final cut in the early part of this century. 
And the final cut arrived with more tweaks and edits, including a couple of little mini reshoots. And I got to see that on the big screen. And that is the definitive version because all the way through the making of the film, Scott never had full control over what was going to get presented. But with the final cut, it was his chance to finally put exactly what he wanted. And every time that there's been a new version of it, I've fallen in love with this film again and again and again. And I'm sure once I upgrade to the 4K UHD edition, I'm going to fall in love with it all over again because I've only got the standard Blu-ray at the moment. I need the 4K version. It was the first Blu-ray I bought and it, and it blew me away when I, I watched it. It's what, at that stage, Blu-ray was created for. So yeah, the final cut came out in 2007 as part of the 25th anniversary and was backed upon the disc by a fantastic documentary which goes into the making of uh, a Blade Runner and sort of explains it. Uh, and it's so inclusive of, of so many elements of how, how the film came together. It is just a, an, an absolutely superb package. And you say when there's the, the, the final 4K release, it, it's going to be it's going to be well worth it. It stood the test of time because it was set in a in a future that really didn't need a date. But it, it stood the test of time because it was a presentation of what the world was going to be like, which was fresh and innovative. And you know what? It still is. So much so that 20 odd years later, we finally got a sequel, which Scott didn't direct, but produced. And and again, it, it met the same kind of reception with audiences that the original film did. I think it's a masterpiece. I think it's visually remarkable. I'm talking about Blade Runner 2049. It was misunderstood by a lot of people when they went to see it. It captures the influences of Scott and does something different with it. It has a further extension of this neo-noir look, and it's a simply beautiful, beautiful film and and the right sequel to be made to Blade Runner. Yeah, completely agree. Uh, 2049 deserved a bigger viewing audience than what it actually got at the cinema, and it deserves to be an essential part of anyone's Blu-ray collection. It's a marvellous film that pays enough enough reference and homage to the style of the original while making its own beautiful landscapes at the same time. What impressed me the most straight out the gate with 2049 is the opening shot close up of the eyeball. And at that point I was like, yep, they're right already. And that was it. I was in marvelous double bill of films. And maybe 20 years from now we'll get another sequel. Who knows? But I I genuinely don't think this is the last we're going to hear of the Blade Runner franchise we've had comic books we've had novels we've had video games we'll get something more exploring the world of blade runner at some point yeah just to point out that that was directed by uh denis villeneuve and shot by the great roger deakins and it is just a sumptuous sumptuous film in its own right that that isn't isn't a twin of blade runner it's it's more like a cousin because it shares some of the same aspects of it takes the story on further but has its very very own look um uh, but again was one of those films that that reached um well a, a mixed audience but that's not because it's a bad film i just again like blade runner it's very very challenging absolutely fantastic well worth seeing it if you've not seen it so andy you have uh, again done better than i am i'm i'm doing catch up with you what did i see i saw love and monsters 
and I saw a promising young woman, which I will I'll quickly talk about. But Andy, give us the reviews for the films you've seen over the streaming platforms of the last week. So I'm going to pick three key films that I've seen over the past week. The first one is one that I've been enthusiastically waiting for, and uh, I'm pretty sure that this is this was a film made with me in mind, and that is. Mortal Kombat has begun. We need to fight before it's too late. There's a war coming. Get over here! I am Sub-Zero. Mortal Kombat. Now, this film is out everywhere except for the UK, seemingly, uh, where it's all fallen silent on the planned release date. Maybe it's waiting for cinemas to open and going to drop into there, but everywhere else in the world, this has landed. Mortal Kombat is drawn from the popular game series, and it knows exactly who its target audience is. The core story to draw us into this world is the eternal rivalry between the Lin Kuei, the faction which Sub-Zero fights for, and the Shinrai Ryu ninja clan, Scorpion's faction. Opens in 17th century Japan, we see the Lin Kuei attack and massacre Hanzo Hasashi and his family. Hanzo, as he dies, is pulled into the netherworld. Lord Raiden, the god of lightning, arrives to save the life of Hanzo's child. Cut to present day, and a former mixed martial arts champion named Cole is attacked by Sub-Zero and ends up recruited by Sonya Blade and Jax, human resistance warriors who know about other worlds in other dimensions and an eternal tournament that threatens to subdue Earth to the nether realm. Shang Tsung, the leader of the Netherworld armies, plans to defeat Earth's champions before the tournament can begin and sends his minions to destroy them. Yes, this is utter nonsense. <laughs> I thought you said that, Andy, because I was about to. <laughs> if you're not a fan of the game series and you're not already embedded in the lore of the games, it's quite easy to dismiss this film as just throwaway junk. But... This is a film that knows its audience, like I said, and it plays strongly to that audience. It throws in characters such as Melina, Goro, and a love, or, love him or hate him, Kano. I absolutely love him. He's played brilliantly in here and he, he's hilarious. As well as lesser known characters such as Cabal and Kung Lao. And it lets them fight in brutal glory with some added fatalities for good measure. It is bloody. It is brutal. It is funny. It looks great. The fights are effective. The gore shocks in the right way and the music, the music sells the rest. As a fan of the series, yes, I loved it, but I can completely understand when other people watch it and go, what have I just seen? For me, this sits comfortably alongside the, my, my beloved Anderson film, the first Mortal Kombat film. And I can see this being another one that I return to year on year and love for what it's doing. It's dumb. It's fun. It's Godzilla versus Kong aspect of don't focus on the characters or the plot. Just watch the spectacle. Albeit this time we get holes getting punched through people, hearts getting squeezed, blood, gore, guts, the lot. It's Mortal Kombat. It's what I wanted. It delivered. It sounds exactly like the game. Just before we started recording, I got a, a screener link. So um, I'm late to the party on it. So by next week, I will give you my review. I'm going to quickly, as I said, mention two films, which I'm a little bit late to the party with this time, which was Love and Monsters, which I had an absolute blast with. Uh, immensely entertaining, uh, wonderfully designed, has a great kind of lo-fi feel to it, 
very knowing, very funny. If there's a sequel to this film, it wouldn't go amiss because I wanted to spend as much time in this world as possible. It, it just works on every level. A likable cast, some really nice uh, twists, beautifully visual, and, and such a good, uplifting film for a film about monsters. Thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. So that's still out on Netflix and well worth seeing. Uh, another film that I did a quick catch up on, of course, was the Oscar winning now Promising Young Woman. You can find this on Now TV and Sky Cinema. I'm not going to go through the plot because Andy did it last week and just listened back to last week's show. But it's a challenging film. It's at times darkly funny. It's at times squirming if you're a, if you're a male. It's at times uh, taking your directions and it has a sleight of hand to it that you wouldn't expect. But at all times, it's just a strikingly visual and wonderfully told film that challenges you, challenges it from a male point of view, which after seeing it with my partner, she saw the film in a slightly different way than I did. It's ambitious, it's original, it's emotional. Carrie Mulligan is just simply sublime in it, absolutely brilliant. And as a, as a film that is now about the now, it's absolutely on the money superb and deserved all the credit that it's got and all the nominations and the wins that it's got as well uh, my last two reviews for this week on netflix there's a film called stowaway a manned mission to mars to conduct scientific experiments to see how viable it will be to colonize the planet is put in jeopardy when a stowaway is discovered a worker who accidentally got trapped on the ship before launch with not enough fuel to turn around and drop him off he must remain with the crew for the two-year mission but when a damaged carbon dioxide scrubber device is found, it appears that the fourth person on what was pushing it as a three-man vessel could put the entire mission in jeopardy. Starts off strong. It kicks off with the launch. It's very close quarters tension. And then it squanders it all in the second half of the film with a middle section that drags somewhat. And even a breathtaking scene in the final act does very little to salvage a film that had a lot of potential, but just throws it away. And it also doesn't help that Anna Kendrick is front and centre in it. And I really do not get the fascination that people have with Anna Kendrick. She can't act. She is just bland and can do one expression. Not a great film. A very average film. Lots of p potential. Could have done with 20 minutes cutting from it. Okay, yeah. I was interested in that one, so uh, I'll let you know. And then over on Sky and now TV, Unhinged Landed. Now, this is a film that came out last year and was briefly at the cinemas before everything shut down. And this is the Russell Crowe channeling inner rage as a divorcee pushed over the edge in a road rage inspired film that will certainly make you think twice before pressing that horn or flipping off that annoying driver in future. Rachel Flynn vents frustration at a pickup truck driver in a rush to get her child to school. However, that pickup driver, played by Crowe, is having a bad day. After all, he's just murdered his ex-wife and her lover. And it appears that whatever medication he's on clearly isn't working. Initially, he demands an apology. When he doesn't get it, he goes on to stalk and harass Rachel and things escalate to a shocking effect. Crow is magnificently disturbing in the film and the film flies through a very short runtime, never letting the foot off the pedal. It reminds me of films such as Spielberg's Duel that you've got one person out to get someone who's slighted them in one way. And it's, this is a film that just hangs on Russell Crowe's anger throughout. And you, you get the feeling he was channeling a lot of his own personal anger and issues while making this film. It's a joy. It's not something that you'll ever want to go back and rewatch, but it's worth watching. It is quite brutal, 
and a bit quite bloody at some points. So be warned. We've got some interesting things uh, happening, haven't we, in the streaming world that are coming up in the next couple of weeks. On Disney Plus, we've got the Oscar winning. Uh, and no surprises that it was the Oscar winning because it was the firm favourite, as we said. Uh, Nomadland, that lands this weekend, I believe. Yeah, we've got Nomadland landing on Disney+. Plus. We've also got The Mitchells versus The Machines, um, an animation from Lord and Miller that we've been quite excited about yes, that lands on Netflix this week. And the trailer is wonderful. Oh, it, it looks great, doesn't it? Um, also on Sky and Now TV, American Pickle, the Seth Rogen starring film, lands. I got to see this last year through another service. It's okay. Cosmic Sin also lands on Now TV and Sky. And Rocketman also lands on Netflix this week for those who've not watched that. Absolute pleasure. It. So it, it's quite a good week ahead of us for films. Okay, so this week was the last episode to land on Disney Plus of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. We've been reviewing, giving mini reviews for the entire series. Andy, what did you think of the last episode? It wrapped things up nicely, didn't it? It was action-packed. It had some fan-pleasing moments. And the finale definitely brought the series to, for me, a satisfactory close. And like I said last week, I now want to go back and re-watch it to see how everything built up to it on those episodes that I didn't quite take to first time round. The new suit was introduced and it looks good on Sam. The power broker reveal, yep, we were right. It was Sharon Carter. Although I'm suspecting there might be some scrolls involved here. And I loved seeing the US agent get his black costume. I love the fact that Walker has been treated right. They could have easily gone down the route of changing him completely for the series and have him become an all-out villain. But he's not that. Anyone who's read the comics and like knows the character in the comics, he's just a patriot who went that step too far, but he wants to be a hero. And with this, with this series, it's been, as soon as he got the serum to enhance his abilities, that pushed him over the edge. He can rein himself in, but he will be the US agent. He'll be the person doing the deep cover work. He'll be doing the dark ops, and that fits it well. I would love to see some more US agent, Agent Walker stuff. And, and I'm pretty sure that we will, Andy. I'm pretty sure that we will. It's been a bumpy ride. It's not been as uh, as clear-cut as, as WandaVision, which was, you know... Egg explored new territories within the MCU and did something completely different. What we got was a six-hour hour movie to a degree. Um, it looked great, had some very clever themes. It ultimately was about what does it take to be Captain America, and that's what the show was about. In some aspects, it got confusing. In some aspects, uh, it, it kind of missed the ball. But ultimately, like you said, it came together with the last episode. It was bold. It was constantly surprising. It was a visual delight. And, and Marvel just spent all the money on, on stunts and effects that you would never normally see uh, uh, from a TV series. It was just incredible. Yeah, there were some niggles, but those niggles kind of slipped away as the series went on and you realised what the series was about. We always knew it was a, a series about identity, uh, but it wrapped things up nicely. I totally agree with you about US Agent. Uh, I think Wyatt Russell has proved that he's a great leading man and very, very charismatic. And, and he wasn't the bad guy. And I've seen some arguments and, and something that you said last week about uh, the Flag Smashers, that they were terrorists and, the, and therefore, to some extent, they got what they wanted. But I thought that was kind of bold because yeah. while they were, you, it's that thing, if for, for one person you're a terrorist, for another you're a freedom fighter. 
and it and it wasn't that um it wasn't that clear cut it was very very gray they they had a, a cause which was a cause that even sam believed in he just thought they were going about things in a, in a different way uh, and and a way that that was was dangerous and damaging i i thought it, it gave them a gray area now I've, I've read and heard that that they were underused and weren't as as dangerous as they should be but that's the thing about movements movements gain momentum because of of people doing bold actions that sometimes walk on the right side or the wrong side of the law but depending on your point of view and i think sam in that closing speech was a little bit hackneyed in places he stood between both of those worlds he understood why they did it he just didn't agree with how they did it the isaiah bradley subplot was fantastic and ultimately the series is about what does it take to be captain america it's not about a super serum it's not about being a white man or a black man. It's it's about having that ability to step up and be bigger. And this is what Captain America has always been about in in the comics: be bigger than the flag. And what does the shield mean? And I and I thought that was fantastic. Whether we're going to get a season two, it doesn't look like it. But what it does look like is, uh, as we said earlier, it's going to lead into Captain America four. So ultimately, yes, a rewarding experience, uh, a bumpy ride, got there in the end, and well worth seeing. And that's it for this week. We'll be back with another film file next week. But before we go, as we always do, we'll be talking about things that we love, liked, enjoyed, read, played, watched, whatever, over the last week in a segment we call Neat Things. Andy, your neat things, please. My neat thing for this week is a game that's been running for 14 years and this month celebrates its 14-year anniversary. And that's Lord of the Rings Online on PC. 14 years ago, the game launched and it began a story that shadows that of the fellowship in the films and the books. Players would explore the world of Middle-earth whilst acting as aides to the fellowship on their quest, occasionally interacting with the iconic characters, but mostly providing scouting and additional exploration in the wake of the fellowship's movements. Over the years, the game moved to a free-to-play model with paid-for quest areas being available to buy in-game using currency that you can either pay for or you can earn in the game by doing tasks. I've been immersed in this game since before it got released. I was on the beta of it. I'm a huge Tolkien fan, and so I took to it straight away. I paid for a lifetime subscription, £70 back then, and I've not had to pay anything since because I get all the content for free, except for proper paid expansions every few years. And what makes me still love it 14 years later is the lore. The lore in the game, which has grown significantly over the years, adding new races, classes and locations, and the pacing of the game. Unlike games of a similar ilk, such as World of Warcraft, I've never felt rushed to get to endgame content and raids. And I've instead taken time to explore Middle-earth and looking at these places that I've read about in Tolkien's writings. And I can throw myself back into this game at any point and absolutely fall in love with it again. And I've been doing it recently because on the anniversary, they always do special events to be able to get yourself some in-game rewards to decorate your housing. Yes, you have housing. I've got a whole island, my own private island in the game that I often spend time just sat fishing, watching boats sailing by. I have spent hours on this game, <laughs> stood in Brie, playing music for any other players who are going past just to entertain people because it's a community feel and it's a great game. If you're a fan of Tolkien and you've never played Lord of the Rings online, seriously, like I say, it's free to play. Just get it download, 
get on there, start playing it. And if you love Tolkien as much as I do, you will end up sticking around and immersing yourself in for the next 14 years to come. Lord of the Rings Online is my neat thing. My neat thing. And I've mentioned this before. Dark Horse Comics have run a series of adaptations of original scripts for for movies that, that didn't turn out that way. Initially, they did an adaptation of Planet of the Apes, going back to Rod Serling's very, very first draft of the script, where it was set in a a present-day America, or a present-day ape America. And and that was great, a great way of seeing um, the what-if of how that world may have turned out for if they'd not have moved on with it. Uh, They did an adaptation of William Gibson's uh, script for Alien 3, which was entirely different than the film that we actually got. And the same recently, which I, I it was my neat thing, was Alien on the Dan O'Bannon script, which, again, bears a slight resemblance to the movie we've got, but got something else. When Star Wars got bought out by Disney, the rights to their last book for Star Wars went to Marvel. And it's available on Comixology for the summary price of 75p. But it's George Lucas's original draft uh, and rough script for the Star Wars. Not Star Wars as we know it, but the Star Wars, which features a whole slew of different characters. And the design of the characters is based on Ralph McQuarrie's original paintings. It's a, it's a new take on Star Wars, giving us a Star Wars that we, that we never saw, but in the what-if universe we might have had. It kind of proves that George Lucas borrowed from himself all the way through both trilogies and went back to ideas that he, he planted in that original script. To say that it's, it's a great script would be would be pushing things a little bit too far. It's a bit rough and ready, a bit shoddy, <laughs> in exactly the way that you kind of expect from, from George Lucas and realising that he did go ultimately down the right path with, with uh, A New Hope. But it's an interesting world to look at. It's closer to Flash Gordon than it is the Star Wars that we see now. And that was Lucas's intention. So if you want to have a look at a way that some of your favourite film franchises could have been then you can pick these up uh, on comiXology but if you want to read the star wars for a limited time to do with may the 4th you can read the star wars for 75p and it's well worth looking at and that's it for this week we'll be back next week so see you later andy and remember it's too bad she won't live but then again who does Thank you.